Welcome into another edition of the Hang Time Podcast. Sekou Smith here in Atlanta. And John Schumann is busy crunching numbers as we get ready for the NBA trade deadline, 3 p.m. Eastern on Thursday, February 7th. So on today's show, we're going to take a break from the madness of the deadline to talk about a new film, High Flying Bird, which debuts on Netflix tomorrow, Friday, February 8th. You can check it out. It's an unbelievably interesting story. I got a chance to see it myself. The film tells the story of a fictional sports agent managing uh, his rookie client during an NBA lockout, which I just so happened to have lived through myself in 2011, like a lot of other people who cover the league. It features interviews with a couple of familiar faces, Carl Anthony Towns, Donovan Mitchell, uh, Reggie Jackson, talking about their welcome to the NBA moments, directed by Steven Soderbergh, and it stars Andre Holland, Zazie Betts, and Zachary Quinto. And it was written by Terrell Alvin McCraney who joins us now on the phone. Terrell, first and foremost, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you taking the time. You and, and Barry Jenkins obviously got the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay for Moonlight in 2016. So this is your first film since then. I'm wondering how you got involved with High Flying Bird in, in a, what's quote-unquote a sports movie, but not really, as we'll get into here shortly. Thanks for having me on. And I hope the deadline doesn't cause too much mayhem in your life later on today. <laughs> the, um, Andre Holland, who is uh, who's also in Moonlight, but he and I have been collaborating for about 10 years now, and uh, since 2006. And he wanted to at first create a picture or a film uh, that talked about the Negro League and the integration of the um, professional baseball mm-hmm. and how that essentially destroyed the Negro League. Um, and he had had that interest for a while. And then he had a conversation with Steven Soderbergh as they worked on a show called The Nick. And they just they just started talking about athletes and, and especially black athletes, what kind of agency they had or or didn't have, how there was the rising statistic around that time that, you know, 70 to 60 percent of players after the NBA, after five years, they, they fall into some kind of financial duress um, that basically is discussing the lockout of 2011, basically discussing things like Donald Sterling, more free agency moves. And just really, and really wanted to talk about something that comes up in a book um, by Dr. Edwards, Dr. Harry Edwards, called The Revolt of Black Athletes, where it just talks about how, you know, for a long time, athletes, uh, black athletes in this country have had to use their agency for activism to gain, they had to use their position and platform to, uh, to get access and how there's a moment in time now where, you know, moments of conflict can really look at and really be a way for these athletes to, in, in, I mean, perfect example, we can start, we can look at the players that Northwestern wanted to use to unionize, look at ways in which athletes are trying to make sure that they have agency. And so, um, Andre and I began talking about this idea and talking about how to put it into a context. And we, you know, we came up with this, with the script and, 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 and Steven, uh, wanted to shoot, wanted to be a part of it and asked if, you know, he, we thought he would be cool or good for him to shoot it. And so we did. So now we have, now it's out on Netflix on the 8th and a limited uh, release in New York and LA on the same day. Mm. The topic itself, I know a lot of people, when they think of a basketball movie, they're expecting, you know, kind of what we've seen in the the sports movie canon, I guess, over the years. You yeah. know, uh-huh. and and this is interesting in that it's a completely different look. I thought it was very unique the way you guys approached it, and as a playwright, and I know you're an accomplished playwright. I'm wondering how that experience of playwriting helps you flesh out a, a script like this and and write a film like this, where there's so much dialogue and so much conversation back and forth about a topic that's really an action topic when you think about basketball. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I mean, that's that's what theater lends itself to. You know, theater is the auditory um, medium mm-hmm. more so than film. Film is visual, you know, as in the case of Moonlight, there's actually less dialogue in that than probably uh, even the first 10 minutes of Offline Birth. And I think in terms of what we want to explore is how a lot of jargon gets passed around and a lot of words get exchanged about basketball that we never hear. You know, the, those conversations that are kept, you know, in the back rooms and in um, or in the board meeting, what we see, what we sort of see, and as you well know, um, are the highlight reels when we see, you know, incredible artists of the court um, doing their thing and gracing us with, you know, magic and performance and the blood and sweat on the court. And then we never know the sort of backroom dealings that go on um, or how they're, you know, how these very same athletes are being asked to shut up and dribble. Yeah. We think of, we, all we see is the amazing. We don't, we don't hear the conversations that are, uh, are had about these, these young art, these young um, athletes. And so it was just really, it was necessary for us to lean into the kind of political and um, economic jargon, financial jargon that, that can fly at a rookie or a person who is just being introduced to that world. I'm, I'm curious, when you have such specific language, as you mentioned, and that is throughout the film, how do, you, how do you find the person that can open up that vault for you so you get, in, get it right? Is it a matter of canvassing a, a large group of people that can kind of cross-check what you're using, or do you go with one person's perspective you know, and, and use that as kind of a launching point for all those nuanced ways that those conversations happen in real life and then in turn in the film? Well, I mean, you're hitting the nail on the head. It's important. You know, it depends on the film. It depends on it depends on what you're doing. In this particular case, you know, what was important to me, again, as a person who loved basketball all my life, um, never played it, and never certainly never been good enough to be anywhere near anybody's professional team. Right. Right. Um, you want to talk to folk like yourself who've been in the game, who've gone through lockouts. And again, even the even the strategies that the, the the agents come up with in this film come directly out of things that, you know, other players have tried to do. Um and, you know, other other former players, players who are currently in lockout, players who are um who turned into managers, you know, ideas that they had because I really wanted to canvas the, that reality rather than try to, you know, make up something that was fictional and couldn't possibly happen. All the things that happened in this film, somebody's either almost done or is trying to do currently. It's, it's really, you know, such a different twist. You know, I think about historically some of the, the sports movies you watch, basketball movies in particular, mm-hmm. and, and the focus, you know, and, and I think about He Got Game is one that I've watched recently, just rewatched recently, yeah. and, and how unique some of those instances were in the film. And, and Rick Fox is a guy I've worked with since that movie. Ray Allen is somebody I've covered, mm-hmm. and it but just how authentic the perspective must have been on that set to have those NBA players and, and high-profile guys as as kind of sounding boards and, and resources. This will seem like a much more difficult thing for you as a writer, just trying to figure out the, the right stroke every time. And I'm, I'm wondering what that process for you is like in terms of your research for a film. How detailed do you have to be and, and how long in terms of time does it take you to get to a comfortable point where you start writing something like this? Well, again, I mean, there's so much information down in, uh, in articles and books. And so the part of the platform about, you know, just looking at what, the, what it takes for a lockout to happen is all right there. I think what became thrilling or became, as you say, um, you know, the thing that we know is, is a part of making the nuance happen is if you see the film, you'll see that there's some people in it like Mr. Mitchell mm-hmm. and, uh, 
and others who can who can speak directly to the experience of being a first-time player and the experience that's going on. So for us, it's, again, we want to always connect it back to what's happening in reality and, and make sure that folks can um, can connect to it in that way. So, you know, there are some folks who will see this and don't have your experience. We'll sure. be like, what? What's going on? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't know that world. These, these these players are paid crazy money, so they should be happy and fine with whatever they get. And you know, the reality of that is that the majority of players don't, you know, don't make over a threshold of one point five or two million dollars a contract. And even then, in that in that medium, the amount of taxation, amount of um, helping out their entire family, because most times, you know, that person is the breadwinner for not just their immediate family, but their entire family. Um, and what that means and what that financial burden can be, it's important to sort of look at all of the the aspects of that. And again, there will be some folks who are like, yo, yo, let's just go back to the court. <laughs> you know, I just want to see, I just want to see them folks play. Right. And, and there, and those movies are great and magic. And I love those, I love those movies as well. I mean, I, I'm a sports movie fan. I love, I've watched Creed about 17 times, so, <laughs> you know, so, cause we love an underdog. We love that story, but we want to talk about the, uh, the another kind of underdog. Yeah. Um, and we want to just make sure that that, voices out there i'm curious to know if there are any things in it that you found just like unbelievable did you feel like you just couldn't watch that part you just like, no, that's not true <laughs> no no it was and it was just interesting for me i mean i've read a lot of harry edwards work so i was yeah. you know and and i saw the nba players in there and i was really intrigued to see them there because you're right they do have they bring an authenticity that you wouldn't normally get in a film like I watch I'm a big fan of Wall Street films like about things I don't know that I'm not well versed in so I I watch those and I wonder how much of it is authentic and how much of it is Hollywood this didn't have this didn't have a Hollywood feel to me this had a grittier feel and I don't know if it was the setting based in New York as opposed to being somewhere Mm -hmm. else or, or why but it just it had an authentic feel definitely to me from the business side of basketball and I like that I didn't have to preoccupy myself with the dual track of the team or the player and his role on that team and what was going on on the business side and with the lockout. It was it made it a little more convenient to watch and, and digest, I think, not having to worry about those two things working at the same time. And I think, you know, and there's some shows out there that get what you're talking about right. I mean, I think, you know, there's, and when I mention these, I mention these because, you know, they're out there for people to enjoy, but shows like Ballers get the kind of flashy, you know, Hollywood mm. side of what it can look like as well as dealing with, like, the actual team itself, and I think they do that in a, in a very succinct way in terms of in terms of sports. I think what we were what we were after was something a little bit more, um, like you said, a little bit more gritty, but a little bit more uh, connected to that singular notion because there are people who run this industry, yeah. right? Yeah. There are people who are being, who are benefiting from this industry and, and also not, not benefiting in certain ways. And we just wanted to make sure that we, we were adding to the many various ways in which you can look at the industry, not just, you know, painting it one way. Um, and so we, you know, I think we hope to be in conversation with, I, I think we hope to be another way of looking at it. Like you said, an interesting perspective and refreshing, you know, I yeah. hope that people see it and, and feel like, Oh wow, I didn't understand that. Or I know a little bit more. And that's interesting. I'll keep track of that now as I go forward. Yeah. I'm, I'm also very intrigued by this idea of Netflix and the doors it's opened yeah. for filmmaking. I, I was thinking about this after I watched 
High Flying Bird. And, and I will mention it again. We're talking to Terrell Alvin McCraney, Oscar-winning screenwriter. I, I mean, I, I don't want to shortchange you whatsoever on the accolades and title. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. But, uh, appreciate but, it. <laughs> but High Flying Bird, which is out on Netflix February 8th, and I was saying to myself, this is a film that might not have been possible in a previous generation based on the Absolutely. the climate, you know, in society. And then when I think about LeBron James and some of the current players in the NBA and, and the power they've kind of taken to tell their own stories and to kind of chart their own mm-hmm. courses. Is this a film that you, even though it's a look back at the 2011 lockout, this doesn't seem like something that gets made in, in that space. It has to be a retrospective almost to me to get made properly the way it does. Well, again, I mean, it, we don't, we don't specify which time it is. Mm-hmm. And again, some of the notions that, uh, some of the notions that come up in the, in the film are definitely of today. So we definitely are taking off, you know, it, <clears throat> some current sentiments that are going um, yeah. around the industry. But also, let's just you know, break you can break down the very um, the very way the film was shot. The film was completely shot on on a phone on iPhones, and and again, we couldn't have done that ten years ago. Right. And now we do it, and we tell people, and people are like, "Whoa, that's in, you know, that's crazy." I didn't even know. I didn't notice <laughs> that until you just told me that. Yeah. And. It, it speaks to something that is an ethos or a part of the film, which is that, you know, technology going the way it's going, the age of information going the way it's going, that how younger and younger and, and even people who have less access or having access to information have access to this kind of technology. The ability to democratize the way in which you tell your own stories is growing. So not just uh, is LeBron James able to produce his own content and tell his own stories, but also the player who who makes you know uh, almost ninety percent less than LeBron James can do that, and also the kid who wishes to be LeBron James can take a camera out and film his day to day and send that into Sundance and say, hey, I've shot a documentary about what it is to play play ball, play court, play the court in my hood, and you know, and be recognized for that. And you know where Barry Jenkins and I are from, Liberty City. We uh, we are home to uh, some of the one of the largest populations of or places where uh, NFL players come from. Right, the players that go into college and go into NFL uh, to the NFL. Um, and that little speck of uh, property right there, you've got a you've got a show on. I believe it's on Showtime uh, called uh, Liberty City Warriors, where yeah. again talking about just the rise of these young folk and and what it means to try to you know be the next person to go on to NFL glory from that neighborhood and how that story isn't uh, just one of like, oh, I got to the NFL and now I made it. It's a story of loss. It's a story about, you know, most of those kids have lost someone or losing someone. They're, you know, they're, they're one of the best players was killed as a little kid. Um, they dedicated the game to them. And those stories, the ability to see um, what players come up through in order to get to that place are becoming easier to access because people can document them and tell their own stories. So, you know, it's exci- it's an exciting time. Um, it's an exciting time. we got to be vigilant to make sure that, you know, not one story is the only story. Sure. Um, we want to make sure that there are many stories, and I think Netflix is a part of that as well. When you, when you heard that Steven Soderbergh suggested that the whole entire film be shot on an iPhone, did that surprise you at all? Or in this day and age of movie making and the entire filmmaking process, was that something that didn't sound foreign to you? Because at my age... And and I have teenage kids who do everything on their phone, so I shouldn't be surprised. They they literally stay in them twenty four seven. Was that something that was, seemed odd to you? Uh, 
no, nah, again, it didn't seem odd because, you know, we, you know, how did we get Issa Rae? You know, how did we get right. Insecure by watching YouTube clips that she, you know, put together on a, of another piece called Aqua Black Girl. Content is made in so many ways now. And, you know, some of the film talks about this, but content is, is so, is, is, is out there, is accessible in ways that, you know, they just weren't. And so for him to be thinking, hey, we need to make this content fast. We need to make this content succinct and, and done beautifully. We also need to do it independently. Because if we, again, speaking to your point earlier, and, um, and if I'm misquoting you, please tell me, but the, the atmosphere of making this film or film like this 10 years ago was not, not really possible, not just because of uh, the technology, but because of the ability, because of sentiment and people yeah. wanting to finance it. Well, Stephen was like, you know what? We can finance this ourselves. <laughs> and... And or he can finance this himself, especially if we film it on this thing that has a has the ability to shoot like a camera ten years ago, uh, a film camera right. ten years ago. We can still make the same quality of film and not have to worry about a studio saying, "Hey, don't t- don't talk about that part, yeah. or don't tell that part of the story, or don't or don't investigate that." And that that again is giving folks access and ways to to come to the table. Yeah, that's a great point. Given the, di- the diversity of personalities and people you, who were involved in this project, what kind of back and forth do you have with a Harry Edwards or with a Donovan Mitchell or someone else who might be a part of it in whatever way and how they respond to the words that you've written? And is there a back and forth about what they view those words to be and mean and, and what your intent was? I'm just curious about that process, how a screenwriter would work with the people who are bringing those words to life. Yeah, well, my producers, uh, Andre Holland and Steven Soberg, were very much already attracted to what uh, Dr. Ed- Edwards had co- had done. Mm-hmm. And I was late to the game. And so, you know, when you're late to the party, last thing you do is control the song. <laughs> you know what I mean? When you're the last person in the car, but you're the last person, you cannot be the one who's controlling what music is being played. So for me, it was very, it was easy to say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I'm coming up with based on the conversations you all have had inform me of where I'm off, inform me of what doesn't sound right or doesn't feel good. And, and you know, Dr. Edward, Edward would give notes to Andre and, and write some notes down and talk and just talk about things. And I would, you know, fix them as best I can, you know, again, but it was a, to me, it was a, that was a smooth process. The, the hard part about it was time. You know, everybody's, you know, Andre was doing seven different projects at the same time. Steven's filming at least three films at the same time. I was doing, you know, I'm still doing about four or five different projects. And sure. so the hard part was, you know, making sure we came back and, and, and took the time to listen and say, okay, cool, we got to fix this. And here's how we nuance this part of the storytelling and make sure that we have all the voices that are a part of this, and including women, including the women who are who are actively a part of um, the industry, how they fit in and where they fit in. Yeah, there was, there was a, a, a fantastic, like I mentioned, diversity to the cast. I thought about Bill Duke, who I've been watching in movies yep. forever, and then Andre Holland, who yep. I've just discovered recently, and kind of that play back and forth between their characters. It just reminded me how much everything evolves and changes in terms of the narratives that you have in film. And I'm a, I'm a like a closet film buff, like a lot of people. I watch a ton of movies i watch all my you know netflix and all that but i'm not technically versed in it the way you are and, and the folks who make movies are so it's always interesting to me to find out kind of how you make that that process work for you guys on that side of it it's just it's fascinating to me I, I you know i have to wrap my head around somebody not only creating an authentic you know original story and then telling it in the ways that they can be told now it's just it's a lot to it's a lot to put into a box and i think that's one of the beautiful things about films like high flying bird and others that the 
amount and diversity of things that are available to us now as as sports fans and as movie buffs and then as people from a particular culture. Um, you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, Liberty City, where you're from, and I, I know people who are from there, and it's football country. If you and Barry Jenkins had decided to make a movie yeah. about peewee football, I know all kinds yeah. of people who would have immediately tapped in to where you guys are from and what it means culturally and kind of how it resonates. Mm-hmm. This film has some of that to me for people all over the country who are from places where basketball culture is thick and and really yeah. has a has a kind of a stronghold in some communities. For sure, and I think you know, and thank you for saying that. I mean, I think it's just it's it's really it's really interesting to me because again, we can we can we can hear just one narrative about uh, a community or about a people, and then now we can hear so many we can hear so many varying stories about that community, and I think it just really is 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 thrilling. It's also great to see that there are you know athletes who can continuously engage in the art form sure. and, and are interested in it. I mean, you know, you mentioned before LeBron James as a, as a production company, and I think, yeah. you know, many other uh, uh, athletes and artists, uh, athletes are crossing over and figuring out how to make sure that their artistry is, is engaged. And that's important, you know, because one – as as I can tell you, for as a former dancer, your body your body can't can't continue to do the press the things that you wanted to in terms of how uh, how hard it is to maintain athleticism in the in in these professions in these strands. Sure. And so you want to make sure that you're still expressing yourself and having the ability to do so. Um, and so that's why it's so important that in Liberty City, where I'm from, it may be football country, but it's also you know you, there are you know five or six extremely versed dancers who who have come out into the world mm. and are running, you know, Alvin Ailey, for example, Robert Battles from Liberty City. He's the head of Alvin Ailey. And, wow. Um, Barry Jenkins is from Liberty City and he, you know, runs his own production, his own film company. Right. So th- those two things together can really, can really begin to express what a community is all about. No doubt about it. And I want to make sure we let everybody know to check this out on Netflix Friday, February 8th. High Flying Bird is a, is a very interesting watch and something that you I'm sure you enjoy. Terrell Alvin McCraney joining us here on the Hangtime Podcast. I knew it got the thumbs up with my wife, who is not a sports fan or basketball fan whatsoever. When I told her, I was like, hey, oh, wow. we, I said, we got to do some homework. I said, I got to watch this so film. You, so you want her with charm. Yeah, exactly. I told her, I said, we got to watch this film. And she's like, what's it about? And I said, well, it's about basketball, but don't worry. It's not a bunch of, you know, guys running down the court playing basketball. It's actually got some more to it. She was like, oh, yeah, let's watch it. So I, was, I said, I think y'all have, y'all have nailed it from the outset because you're going to capture the imagination of people <laughs> who don't just want to watch somebody shoot buckets. Hey, well, we're happy to make sure that your, you know, your date night is fulfilling. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're, we're glad we can aid you in that. And so, yeah, we appreciate it. And, and make sure that, you know, some other folks who, who need a nice date night, go see it on the 8th. If they're in New York and L.A., we've got a limited run starting on the 8th as well. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you. High Flying Bird debuts Friday, February 8th on Netflix. Thank you, Terrell. Appreciate you. Thanks so much, sir. Right, take care. All right, man. Bye-bye. I'm, I'm mad that uh, John Schumann wasn't around to get a chance to talk about this because Shu is a numbers cruncher. He's an analytics guy. He would have enjoyed a lot of the back and forth on this on this film. We'll be back on Monday with another episode of the Hangtime Podcast, and Shu will be back with his uh, NBA.com power rankings. Be sure to subscribe to Hangtime on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts for new episodes all season long. Don't forget to leave a review, and we appreciate you. We'll see you next time right here on the Hangtime Podcast.